a number of people, and you may be one of them, aspire to be really popular or even famous. I mean, you may be realistic about things and know that you might not stand much chance, but you still aspire to that. However, not all is always as glamorous as it seems when it comes to fame. Often when people arrive at being famous, they find that that fame or the popularity that they achieve is actually crushing. Whether you gain fame through movies or music or sports or politics or whatever, it becomes a lifestyle, 24-7 lifestyle of activity. There are non-stop demands for your time or your attention. There are throngs of fans who badger you for autographs or photographs or handshakes or smiles or retweets nowadays. There are incessant press conferences and interviews and photo shoots, auditions, paparazzi, all kinds of things. And these things can all add up and lead to extreme stress or even nervous breakdowns for some. Fame can end up being crushing if someone isn't prepared for its demands. Well, as Jesus came to earth and began his ministry, he began teaching and healing and performing miracles all over Palestine, and everything he did and said caught people's attention in a big way. He was doing things and saying things that had never been seen or done before, and it was the perfect recipe for becoming famous in first century Palestine. And boy, did Jesus' fame ever grow fast. Crowds and crowds of people began to follow him everywhere he went. They would travel for days just to catch a glimpse of him or to hear him speak or to have him touch them. But as far as we can tell, Jesus didn't have much difficulty handling the stress of his increasing fame. He was prepared for the fame. In fact, when his fame caused some difficulties in his ministry, he faced them head-on, and he made the necessary adjustments in how he ministered to people. Today, we're going to see a story of when he did just this. But the point of the story we're going to see isn't the crowd. The point isn't Jesus' fame. Instead, the point of the story is Jesus looking at the crowd and choosing a few out of the crowd, of him looking beyond the throng of fans that he had to make a few followers of his. This story is going to describe to us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to get beyond his fame, get beyond the popularity, and let him transform your life. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. There's pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have one of your own, and it's on page 860, 860, Luke chapter 5, and we'll be starting in verse 1. It's our desire that, as a church, we would all become faithful, growing disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission as a church, and that really should be our lifelong goal as individuals. But we can only become true disciples of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit's power. So would you please begin with me by praying and asking that he would work in our hearts today? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your spirit this morning into our hearts to work on them, to mold them, to change them, to grow them. That we would 
see what it means to be a disciple of you, and that we would long for that, that we would aspire to that, and that you would help us, because we know we can't do it on our own. So please give us the grace and the, the needed strength to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not exactly sure when this story took place, but chapter 5 took place sometime, of course, after the events of chapter 4. So Jesus had left Capernaum to preach all over Palestine, from Galilee to Judea. And chapter 5 finds Jesus back in the north, back in Galilee, most likely near Capernaum again, on the Sea of Galilee. And immediately we see what I mentioned earlier. Jesus' fame was increasing. Verse 1 says this, On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The lake of Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. But here we see how crushing Jesus' fame was becoming. It could have literally crushed him. People were pressing in, pushing in. Would have trampled people probably. Like people maybe at like concerts where they're trying to reach out and get band members to touch their fingertips. And, but most of this crowd wasn't pressing in in order to touch Jesus. You notice what it said? They were pressing in in order to hear the word of God. That's a good reason if I've ever heard one. The people recognized that Jesus was speaking the words of God, whether he was preaching from and about Scripture, or they realized that Jesus' words were actually God's words. But there was a problem here. Not everyone could hear what Jesus was saying, which is why they were pressing in. And Jesus realized that he had to do something so people could hear him, and probably also so he wouldn't get trampled by the eager crowd. So Jesus looked around, saw the situation, and he got resourceful. Verse 1 again, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here we have Simon Peter, who we've already met a couple times, is nearby washing his fishing nets. He and his companions have been out all night fishing, and his boat was sitting there on the shore. And Jesus asked Peter to launch his boat. Peter liked Jesus, so he was happy enough to oblige. But more, and so... But Jesus knew that people wouldn't be able to trample him if he was not on the land, if he was in the water. But more importantly, this gave him the space to project his voice so all could hear. Sounds carry well over water. And since the shore likely sloped away from the water, Jesus very creatively formed a natural amphitheater for people to hear. Remember what I said, though. The focus of this passage is not on the big crowd. The focus of this passage is on Jesus and a select few men, which are Peter and his fellow fishermen. We're quick to identify these men as a few of Jesus' 12 disciples, 12 men that he specifically mentored during his time on earth in order to establish the church. But this story took place before these men were disciples. They weren't disciples yet. Oh, they knew Jesus. They were excited about him. And some of them had already begun to follow him around the country from place to place. But despite their fanboyishness, these men weren't fully committed to Jesus' cause yet. That was about to change. In fact, their whole lives were about to change forever. 
Before we move on, it's important just to take note of what was going on, because this is the context in which discipleship begins, hearing the word of God. People can only become disciples once they've heard the word of God. Hearing God's word is a good beginning. In fact, the best beginning. However, I think an implication of this passage is that in order to be a true disciple of Jesus, we've got to move beyond just hearing. As James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing is good, but it can be worthless if we never do more than just hear. You don't become a disciple by just going to church or just reading your Bible. You have to do more. Hearing is, in this passage, we see two good but inadequate reasons, or not reasons, reactions to Jesus. Okay? So hearing is the first of two good but inadequate reactions. The second, which we'll get to in a minute, is spectating. But encounters with Jesus often lead to these two good but incomplete responses. Jesus wanted more. Here's what we see here, his first point. That Jesus wanted people to be more than just listeners or spectators. People heard Jesus and people gawked at Jesus, but Jesus wanted more. Jesus wanted people to be more than simply listeners or spectators. If Jesus was happy with the people just hearing what he had to say, like we saw in verse 1, after speaking, he would have just headed home for the day, wherever he was going. But Jesus wanted more than just people who would come and listen to God's word. He wanted disciples who would put his word into action. So even when Jesus was done speaking, his work wasn't yet done. And in verse 4, it says this, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus turns his attention to Peter, and in verse 4, he tested Peter's faith and obedience. Peter had heard him say amazing words, had seen him do amazing things, but would Peter trust Jesus when he asked him to do something? Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this would have seemed like a crazy request for Jesus to make. First of all, Jesus wasn't a fisherman. He was a carpenter turned rabbi. What could Jesus ever know about how to catch fish? No one likes getting on-the-job advice from someone in a different line of work, do they? How would, how would you like it if I came to your workplace this week and started telling you how to do your job? You wouldn't like it very much, would you? I think you need to take better care of that patient in that hospital room there. Not doing a good enough job. Or leaning over your shoulder... Yeah, you messed up that calculation. Better check your math. Handing back a plate at a restaurant. Yeah, I've got some ideas. You better make this plate a better meal. (laughs) Or if you're a salesman, I know the words that you could have said to finalize that deal. You'd probably rightfully feel insulted by my insinuations. What does a pastor know about nursing or accounting or cooking? This is my job. I was trained for it, or I got an education for it. I'm the expert. You aren't. 
in our story, I'd imagine Peter felt somewhat insulted by Jesus telling him, a lifelong fisherman, how to fish. But Peter didn't yet realize that Jesus was the Lord of the fish, the Lord of the seas. The second crazy aspect of Jesus' request was that the fishermen had already finished their work for the day. They had spent all night fishing. They were tired. They were ready to head home. Their boats were at the shore. Their nets were clean. They were done. But Jesus wanted them to head back out for another go-around. They had been out there all night because that was the prime time for fishing. Fish that wouldn't come near the surface or the sunlight in the day would come near the surface at night. But this is another crazy aspect of Jesus' request. He was asking them to do this in the middle of the day. The disciples had been out all night, which means this was likely mid-morning or early afternoon, and they must have thought, Jesus, the fish ain't biting right now. You're crazy. They weren't biting all night. They definitely won't be now. Jesus was telling them how to do their job after their work was done and when the fish shouldn't have been biting. And all that frustration must have been contained in Peter's statement in verse 5. After Jesus said, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. You can sense some annoyance, perhaps feeling a bit of failure as well. Jesus, we're not going to get any fish now. We didn't catch anything all night long. So it looks, at first, like Peter's faith might fail the test. He obviously doubted Jesus' instruction. But in midst of his doubts, he opted to obey. The master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. At your word, I'll let down the nets. This is comforting for us. We all have doubts just like the first disciples. But Jesus can work through what little faith we have. And even when we doubt, he tells us we've got to take him at his word. At your word, I will let down the nets. Peter said, at your word, or because you say so, I'll do this. Boy, wouldn't that revolutionize the way we read scripture? If we just said that. At your word. I'll do it. You doubt that God could love you or forgive you. Take him at his word. You doubt that God is good or that he's merciful or that he's powerful. Take him at his word. And then obey what he asks of you, no matter how crazy it sounds. When the disciples obeyed Jesus, their skepticism quickly turned to shock. Read with me in verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, 
who were partners with Simon. Jesus worked a miracle in their midst, perhaps by calling the fish to the surface or by guiding the boat to the right place, the perfect spot. Perhaps by the later story of the loaves and fishes, Jesus was multiplying the fish under the water. We don't know. Whatever his method, Jesus was proving his great power over creation once again. I was wondering this week, was Jesus rewarding his disciples' small faith here? Perhaps he was rewarding their faith. Regardless, their faith was pretty weak. I think that Jesus just decided to bless them, graciously providing this catch of fish for these weary fishermen. It was out of his goodness and his grace and his love that Jesus showed them this miracle. And this was the catch of a lifetime for these small-town fishermen. Think about fishermen today, recreational fishermen mostly. They're known nowadays for bragging about their biggest catches, which notoriously get larger in their imaginations by the day. I once caught a fish this big. Oh, yeah? I caught a fish this big once. And by next week, they're bound to be whales. (laughs) But these fishermen weren't recreational fishermen like you see today with poles and hooks and bait. These were commercial fishermen. They did it as a living. It was their full-time job of catching fish. And they used big old nets to scoop up large numbers of fish at a time. And their main concerns, if you think about it, were efficiency and quantity. They didn't really care about the individual fish. They wanted big catches of multiple fish. And they probably didn't go about usually bragging about their biggest catches of their life. But these men sure could have spent the rest of their lives bragging about this catch. Even just claiming to have seen this happen would have made for quite the fish story. They caught so many fish that their strong and durable nets began to break. And their boats, which, remember this, their boats were designed for fishing. Okay? And they began to sink. There were so many fish. They had what we'd call a boatload of fish, literally. (laughs) As you can imagine, this astonished the disciples. They couldn't believe their eyes. Verse 9, we saw this. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Here we see the second good yet inadequate reaction to Jesus of spectating. They were rightly astonished, awestruck by Jesus' power. They gawked. But again, discipleship begins in this context. We must see Jesus' power. We should, we should absolutely be amazed at what he has done and what he can do for us. But just like hearing, seeing isn't enough. Jesus wanted more. We're going to see this really throughout Jesus' ministry as he calls many disciples to him. He wanted people's whole persons, their body and their soul, not just their ears, not just their eyes, not just their minds, not just their strength. He wants our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, everything we are. And here's what we see here. Jesus wanted people to be more than just listeners and spectators, so he chose people to follow him as his disciples. Jesus faithfully calls people to obediently surrender their whole lives to him. He wants more than just listeners and spectators. He wants disciples. This began with Peter when Jesus asked him to put out his boat into the water. And Peter obeyed. 
Despite his doubts, he obeyed. Then Jesus demanded more of Peter. He told him to go fishing again. And once again, Peter obeyed. As we come to the end of this passage, Jesus demanded even more. In verse 10, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. At this point, Peter, along with some other of the men, made a decision. It was a costly decision, but it was the right one to make. They had to follow Jesus. They had to go with him. They had to learn from him and help him and emulate him, do whatever he asked them to do. And for them, that meant leaving everything else in their lives behind. You see in verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The title disciple, which doesn't appear here, but it appears later on, referring, talking about these men, the word disciple literally means learner. So like a student or a pupil of a teacher. But the, but the Bible implies more when it talks about Jesus' followers or Jesus' disciples. It implies someone who learns from Jesus and who follows him with their life. So someone who molds their life around Jesus' teaching, listening and following and obeying him. True disciples wouldn't just hear. True disciples wouldn't just see. True disciples put what they heard and saw into practice. I think we can draw a definite parallel between the people in this story to us today. See, the people in this story both heard Jesus' divine words and they saw his divine power. And we too, we've heard God's word in scripture and we have seen God's power. We've seen the power of the gospel transform lives. But are we obediently following Jesus with our lives? Can people tell that we're more than just hearers or spectators, but we're disciples? Are we applying God's word to our lives, letting it transform us? Are we trusting his power? If you wonder what it actually looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, I think this passage reveals three further truths about what being a disciple really means. The first we see in verse 8 in Peter's response to the miracle. Imagine for a second, okay, before we read this, imagine being in Peter's shoes. Okay? You had obeyed Jesus with whatever small amount of faith you had, but you had seriously doubted his sanity for a little while. Sure, he could heal and exercise demons and teach people, but apparently he couldn't fish. But as you begrudgingly were carrying out his commands, Jesus worked a miracle. And in an instant, Jesus had proved himself not only to be a better fisherman than you, but as someone who obviously had divine powers. No mere man could have done what he just did. And suddenly you realize that Jesus is more than a man. This man had God's power. How would you feel in the boat there with Jesus? Maybe guilty about your doubting him in the first place? Probably somewhat humiliated at what you'd said about it. Probably embarrassed and not realizing who Jesus was earlier. 
This seems to be exactly how Peter felt. And in verse 8, when he responds, it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Learn something very important by this. Jesus wanted people to be his disciples, despite their unworthiness. Peter felt completely unworthy to be Jesus' disciple. But Jesus still wanted him. And Jesus wants us to be his disciples despite our unworthiness. Even if we can understand Peter's shock, you might still think his response is a bit strange. Why would Peter bring up his sin in this situation? We might expect him to praise Jesus' power or thank him for the miracle or apologize for what he had said, but not this. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The key to understanding Peter's response is that Peter recognized who Jesus was. He recognized who Jesus was, and Jesus was more than a man, more than a rabbi, more than a Messiah. He had to be God. And if God was in the boat with him, the holy and righteous and just, God, the first thought Peter had was how unholy he was. This is the response people often had in Scripture when they found themselves in God's presence. When Job, in the Old Testament, saw God's glory, he said, I had heard of you, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When the prophet Isaiah saw God, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And so Peter fell to his knees in dread. Jesus was so powerful, his presence was dangerous. And Jesus was so holy that his presence was especially dangerous for sinners. Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. In the previous passage, we had seen Peter actually begging Jesus to stay with them. He had followed him into the desert and clung to him. Please stay with us, Jesus. But now, once he realized who Jesus truly was, he wanted Jesus to leave. Depart from me, Lord. This wasn't because he didn't want to be around Jesus, but because he felt like he couldn't be around Jesus. Not with his sin. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter felt condemned without hope of any further relationship with Jesus. But what Peter didn't see yet is that that's why Jesus had come to earth. He had come to repair the broken. He had come to forgive sin. And he had come to restore people's relationship with God. 
And Jesus would accomplish this, this not by judging and condemning people for their numerous sins, but by taking the judgment and condemnation of sin onto himself. And God's holiness and righteousness and justice against sin would be satisfied when Jesus took our sins on his back and died on the cross. Taking our death, dying our death. And when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, he forever destroyed the power of sin. And now, get this, now sinners can enter into the presence of a holy God. Not because of our righteousness, but because we're clothed in Jesus. Once we see ourselves for who we are, as sinners who are condemned because of our sin, and we see God for who he is, a holy and just and loving and merciful God, willing to forgive, the only right response is to repent. Willingly turning from our sins. Repentance is a mark of a true disciple. For those who would aspire to following Jesus, what Jesus asked for is belief and repentance. Belief, believing that he is who he says he was, believing that he died and rose again for you, and repenting turning from our sins and turning to him and saying, I can't do it, God. I need you to. So instead of saying what Peter says, depart from me, for I'm a sinner, we can instead fall to our knees and say, come into me, Jesus. Be my Savior. Forgive my sins. I'm going to follow you. You've done this before? Have you made the decision to become a disciple of Jesus? He's still calling disciples today. And I know he'd love to call you his disciple. If you'd like to talk more about this decision, please come talk to me after the service. Don't put it off. This is not something to take lightly, to laugh about. We need Jesus. We need his grace. Don't be afraid to do this. Speaking about being afraid, fear was obviously a dominant emotion for Peter here. But Jesus didn't intend to scare Peter. He didn't want to freak him out by his power. He wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to make Peter courageous. And so he said this in verse 10. He said, Jesus said to Simon, the first words, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus was assuring Peter, I don't need to leave you. You don't need to leave me. I want you here with me. And I'm going to use you in a mighty way. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. This is, of course, a very well-known statement of Jesus. You will be catching men, or you will be fishers of men. The word for men here refers to all people, men and women. And in this statement, we see another key feature of being a disciple of Jesus, that Jesus chose people to obediently follow him as disciples 
in the process, giving them a new life's calling. Jesus changed his new disciples' calling and vocation and purpose and objective in life. Jesus chose people to be his disciples and in so doing gave them a new life's calling. No longer would they just be ordinary Galilean fishermen. They were transformed by Jesus. Jesus still wanted them to be fishermen, but they wouldn't need a boat or nets or even water or fish to do the kind of fishing that Jesus wanted them to do. It says, from now on, you will be catching men. You know the old Sunday school ditty? I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. Cute song. (laughs) But Jesus wasn't making them some kind of offer to accept. If you'll follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus was assuring them matter-of-factly that they would become fishers of men. From now on, you will be catching men. And in a parallel passages where Jesus tells them to follow me, follow me wasn't an offer that could legitimately be refused. It was a command to either obey or disobey. This was more of an appointing than a request. You will be my disciples. And you will be catching men. Think for a minute about that analogy that Jesus was using for of fishing for people. Kind of bizarre, verse thinking. But Jesus wanted his disciples to cast much bigger nets than what they were used to. Nets that wouldn't catch fish, but would catch people. He obviously wasn't saying to take a big, huge net and physically run down a street hauling in people and wrapping them up in some kind of rope prison. No. <laughs> And he wasn't saying that their job was to still go out in boats and dredge up dead bodies from the seafloor. No, that's not what he meant by catching people. Jesus was talking about spiritual fishing, not physical. Now, usually when a fisherman caught fish, it's with the intention to kill the fish, right? They, you take it out of the water. Fish can only live in water. And then they kill and eat the fish or sell it to someone else who would. But the word that Jesus uses here for catching, catching people, combined two words. It was a compound word. It combined the words to catch with life. Okay, catch and life. It literally meant to catch alive. And it has the idea of rescuing something from danger. Usually, fish would have needed rescuing from the fishermen not from the water. But Jesus reverses the imagery, saying people needed rescuing from the water. Philip Ryken says this, that Jesus was calling Peter to be a new kind of fisherman, one who rescued people from the deep sea of their sin and brought them safely to the shore of salvation. That really describes the analogy very well, I think. The sea is sin. The fish are the people swimming in their sin. The fisherman rescues people from sin and brings them to land, which is salvation. Disciples really are called by Jesus to participate in what you might call a divine fishing mission. God doesn't need us to do this. 
but he graciously gives us the opportunity to be a part of his work. Evangelism and discipleship, fancy words we use to describe this, they aren't jobs to dread. They're privileges to take part in. And if you follow Jesus, you are a fisher of men, a people catcher, whether you like it or not. The question is whether we're doing our job. You may be a computer tech or a teacher, government worker, burger flipper, a student, a retiree, but God has now called you to a new life's calling, a much higher calling. And we don't usually need to leave our physical jobs today in order to fish for people nowadays. But this is to be a major focus of our lives. More than an employee or a student of wherever, you are now a fisher of men. And we should be casting wide nets whenever we get the opportunity, using every opportunity to point people to Jesus on the shore. We cast wide nets by speaking about Jesus everywhere we go, everywhere, every time we get the chance, maybe over meals, over lunch with someone, online, plenty of places nowadays online, on buses, on the street, at family gatherings, in your yard, in your dorm hallway, your condominium hallway, at church, with your kids, in hospitals, nursing homes, where, where people really need to hear. You can it, do it by so many ways. You, in, by inviting someone for dinner, writing them a letter or an email, giving them a phone call, giving them a tract, or better yet, a Bible, inviting them to church or your small group. Sharing your testimony with them. The means that we can do this are so many. And these are ways that we cast wide nets, taking every opportunity we have to cast them out. Probably the most important thing we can do to be better fishers of men is to pray. After all, no matter how much this is our job to carry out, it's God's work. And we will only be successful when the Holy Spirit works through us. We can't change people's hearts. Only God can. So pray. Pray that God would make you into a better fisherman. Pray that he would give you wisdom in how to cast your nets wide. Pray that God will give you multitudes of opportunities to speak about Jesus. Pray that you would have the words to say when moments present themselves. Pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you to reach people with the gospel. Pray for your unsaved friends, your family members, co-workers, neighbors by name, specifically. I believe that those are prayers that Jesus loves to answer. Here's the thing, though. When we cast our nets wide by the Holy Spirit's power, we never know exactly how much we'll catch. Could be many, could be none. That's up to God. But if we refuse to ever cast our net, I can guarantee you we won't catch anything. 
a mark of a true disciple is that they will seek to be fishers of men for God's glory. You might think, Pastor Matt, that sounds pretty radical to me. If I were to live like a true fisher of men in my day-to-day life, this would completely change the way I live. Yes, it would. Like I said, Jesus changes his disciples' calling in life. We're no longer to be focused on ourselves. We're to be about others. And yes, this is a radical command. Following Jesus would change his disciples' entire lives. And that's the final thing we'll see in this passage about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus chose people to be his disciples, demanding their full devotion. When Jesus called people to be his disciples, he demanded that they give him everything. Jesus chose his disciples and demanded their full devotion. If someone ever told you that being a follower of Jesus is easy, they lied to you. If someone ever told you that being a follower of Jesus wouldn't cost you anything, they lied. There is a cost to becoming one of Jesus' disciples. Look at what it cost these men. Verse 11 again. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left what? Everything. And followed him. The call to follow Jesus with their life demanded their full devotion. Anything less wasn't true discipleship. They had to uproot where they lived, follow Jesus wherever he went. They had to quit their jobs, losing their source of reliable income. They had to leave their homes, their beds, most of their friends, their communities. They had to leave their reputations and their aspirations and their ambitions behind. Many would have had to leave extended family or even for a season, immediate family. Now, do we need to give up everything in order to follow Christ today? In most cases, no. We don't have to leave everything behind because we're not physically following Jesus around the countryside. We're following him spiritually. But I'll tell you this. We have to be willing to give up everything. We have to be willing to. The first things that absolutely have to go are our sins. Anything leading us to sin. If we're participating in some sinful activity, we have to repent and leave it entirely behind us. If anything is leading us, tempting us, causing us to sin, it has to go. The places we go, the websites we visit, the entertainment we watch, the music we listen to, the people we associate with, the things we eat or drink, whatever the case may be. Those things have to be left behind. Being Jesus' disciple will cost you in sinful pleasures. You have to leave them behind. Jesus calls us to leave our pride behind, our worldly friendships behind, our selfish ambitions behind, our bitter grudges behind, our precious idols behind. He wants us to give up the right to live the way we want to live. And depending on your situation, God may call you to give up much more than just bad things. He may call you to give up good things, like your home, your comfort, 
or security, a relationship with someone. He may call you to live a life of radical generosity or a life of ministry or of missions. He may call you to give up your popularity or your reputation or your occupation. He may call you to be persecuted, mocked, reviled, and even to die for him one day. But I'll tell you this. Jesus will never ask you to give up anything that he didn't give up himself to love you. Say that again. Jesus won't ask you to give up anything that he didn't give up himself in order to love you and to save you. He gave up everything. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Today you might say it's like we took a journey out on a boat with Jesus. And on this journey, we've seen Jesus' divine words, seen his divine power. We've seen his call to radical, obedient, humble, repentant, and sacrificial discipleship. We've seen his call for us to become fishers of men and women all around us every day. And now you could say we're bringing our boats into land. And the question is the same as it was then. Will you leave everything to follow Jesus? Don't just listen to his words. Don't just be amazed by his power. Follow through on following him. Because he left everything in order to give you this opportunity. And by his incredible grace, he'll mold us to become true disciples of his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do that, that you would mold our lives, that people would be able to look at us and know that we follow you. Help us to be fishers of men by your power. Please, Holy Spirit, work through us. Make us your messengers. Help us love others so much we want them to love you. We need your help, and we make the commitment today to follow you once again. I ask this in Jesus' name.